Thanks for joining us on Battle Walks as we walk across the great battlefields of Europe. If you're enjoying the show, why not become a member? Every week, you'll receive exclusive bonus episodes available only to subscribers, and you can listen to all our episodes completely ad-free. Click on the link in the show notes to join us via ACAST+. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. A Living History Production. I'm Matt McLaughlin. And I'm Pete Smith. We're battlefield historians who love nothing better than getting out and walking the ground where great battles in history took place. And now we'd like you to come with us. Every week, Battle Walks will take you to one of the great battlefields of Europe. As we walk the ground, we'll dig through the pages of history, we'll uncover the secrets of the battlefields, and most importantly, we'll tell the stories of the people who fought and died there. Welcome to Battle Walks. Hello and welcome to Battle Walks, where we are walking the great battlefields of Europe. This is a very special one this week because we're doing something a little bit different. And I've got to say, there's, there's quite a tinge of jealousy in me here because my uh, wonderful co-host, Pete Smith, is based in France and he lives in the battlefields. And so therefore, in spite of COVID, in spite of lockdowns, in spite of the dramas we've had over the last 18 months or so, Pete is still able to get out and walk the battlefields. He can't guide people, which I know is a huge source of frustration for him but he can get out and walk the battlefields, and that's what we're going to be doing today, our first ever live walk of a battlefield. Sadly, I won't be there with him, but I'm looking forward to this, I think, just as much as you are to hear him walking around the battlefields. Pete, welcome back to the show. Tell us all about what we're doing today. It's really exciting. Thanks, Matt. Uh, great to be back again. Well, I just thought it was uh, about time that we actually physically got out there. Now, I'm very uh, it's a shame that you can't be with me, um, but I thought let's have a have a go at doing a, a live broadcast uh, uh, per se outside so you'll hear the wind whistling around the mic and we're going to be having a look at uh, really just the fields around my village where i live um, and and the physical aspect of walking those fields what do i do when i'm walking the fields when i'm having a look when i'm looking down seeing if i can spot anything in the ground when i'm looking up just to give you a feel of what it's like literally walking on a battlefield the reason I'm so excited about this, Pete, is this is not a famous battlefield we're going to be walking. This is not the beaches of Normandy or the Waterloo battlefield or the opening day of the Battle of the Somme. This is this is just a field next to your house, and it just says it just speaks to me so much about the history that is all around you there on the Somme, and that's why I'm so jealous. I would love to be able to walk out my front door and know that I'm standing in the middle of one of these historic battlefields. Yep, the date is going to be the 16th of September in 1916. It's part of the Battle of the Somme. 
it's just a day like any other, a, a day really of horror, but but of, of the ongoing attempt to push the Germans back, part of that uh, their overall Battle of the Somme. In fact, right in the middle, the day after the, this village where I live was taken by uh, tanks on the 15th of September. So it's uh, it's somewhere that I walk. And in fact, actually, I'm going to tell a story about what I find in this field. It's one I hadn't walked before. It was one I decided that I would just try a different field and go and have a look at, at what was in there. And also to get a feel of what it would have been like to have been attacking over that landscape. So that's what we're, we're going to do. Well, it's super exciting. Before we get into it, you're going to uh, lead us off shortly. But before we do that, let's just talk about why we walk the fields. Why is it important to get out there and walk across the land? Well, for me, it's something that I started doing when I was very young. Um, in fact, at primary school, I had a headmaster who was uh, very keen on local history. And on a Wednesday afternoon, he would take uh, all the, 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 the pupils at the school, uh, myself and, uh, and my, uh, my fellow students, and we would be given a brown paper bag, as it was in those days, walk into the fields, lined up, and literally walk one side to the other. He'd obviously got permission from the farmer. Walk from one side to the other, and we had to pick up anything that we saw that we thought was interesting. Bits of pottery, marbles, just anything. Beads, just anything we saw, pop it in the bag. And then we went back into the school, and we spent the next few days washing, cleaning, identifying, sorting any of the artefacts we found. And we used to find all sorts, from Roman bits and bobs to marbles uh, from the, uh, uh, the the children playing with them in Victorian times, uh, clay pipes, obviously the mainstay, and then things to do with the farming, horseshoes from the horses, just all sorts of bits and, uh, bits and bobs, medieval pottery. A lot of it came from, I, I grew up in East Yorkshire, a little village on the outskirts of Hull, and it was called the night soil. In other words, all the rubbish and the refuse uh, uh, from the, the houses were put, was put into carts and was taken out as fertiliser and dumped in the fields. And so this is what it was. It was the refuse from the uh, from the, uh, the city. So that really set me off on, on something that I continued even at that period, I would then go with my friends after school and during the summer holidays, we would walk the fields ourselves uh, when it was uh, we were able to, when the ploughing had taken place. And very soon I had a, a collection of all of these bits of bobs, clay pipes especially, all sorts of little bits of clay pipes. And it became a, something that I really was in my in my blood, really. I'm a collector, I've always have been a collector, but it's, it's that two things, it's touching history and and collecting that me it just makes it so interesting and as I grew older I realized that research was the key it's all right finding these things but unless you can kind of put some kind of provenance to them then it's just a thing so research finding out what was going on why they were dumped in the fields uh, and eventually led me to finding the local dump the Victorian dump for my village where all the refuse and rubbish had been put in a wood, and this was a clue I should have realised years earlier, called Rat Wood. And of course it had rats in it because it had a lot of rubbish in it. Um, and in that little wood of rat wood, uh, I started digging up bottles and I, I became for many years a very keen bottle collector. Uh, to such an extent that my father, when I went off to join the military, decided that I, I should sell them because he was worried about the attic having so many bottles inside that the, the ceilings were going to collapse in the house. So I, uh, I had to sell most of my collection. I've still got a few about um, but it's it's always been with me. So when I moved out here to France, I mean, I, I was aware that the uh, the detritus of battle would be all around in the fields uh, around us. Um, I had uh, two uh, teenage children at the time, and they were very keen to walk with me in the fields, especially my son. And we spent uh, uh, 
hours and hours, uh, sometimes every day, going out, exploring the area with our heads down. Not always. The key is to not just look at the, at the ground to see what you can see, but it's to look up and to realise why it was there. And that's the great connection. It is when you find something, look around you and think, why is that there? Why is it here? And this is a story I'm going to be telling uh, uh, today. Is the story of of finding something in a field and then build, being able to build the whole story of why it was there. Pete, I can't tell you how exciting I find that description, uh, especially as an Australian. I think it, we, obviously we have a, a broad range of listeners from across Europe and America and Canada and also throughout Australia. <laughs> the Europeans just take it for granted that if you go for a poke around in your garden or the field next to your house, you will find everything from Roman coins to <laughs> to pottery to to Victorian marbles. But for us Australians, it's uh, it's just extraordinary. I, I, I was fortunate enough last year to go uh, mudlarking down on the Thames when I was in London, not last year, the year before, when I went See, that's what COVID does to your yep. time is uh, starting Indeed. to blur. It was the year before, in, uh, 2019, when I um, was in London, I went mudlarking um, with uh, Lara Meekham down there on the uh, on the Thames and just extraordinary. The idea that you can just walk around just picking up thousands and thousands of years of human history, quite extraordinary. But of course, on the First World War battlefields, it's very specific, um, the, the sorts of things you can discover in the stories that they tell. Uh, is that a? How do you stand on collecting artifacts from the battlefield? Well, it's always interesting. Uh, uh, people, some people sit in the middle. Some people absolutely against it. Some people, uh, like myself, uh, uh, don't find it an issue. Uh, and I'll explain why I don't find it an issue. Really, it, it's because that landscape, the the surface area, the area that's been ploughed, has been ploughed for near on a hundred years uh, now. Um, so it's been turned over constantly. So there's no context. It's not like an, an archaeological site where you want to preserve it. This this layer of, of earth in the plough line has been turned over and over and over. And everything eventually will be destroyed. The modern mechanics of, of, of uh, the, the ploughing itself, the harrowing, everything else that the farmers do means that things are broken up and broken up and broken up and, and just eventually will be smashed into such small pieces that you won't be able to ever identify what they are. So I'm looking in this area. I'm not digging. I'm not using a metal detector. I'm using the Mark One eyeball and I'm looking down and I'm just picking up things that are, are in this, this, this strata that is being constantly turned over. And so I have no qualms about picking things out of this strata. Now, I do have qualms about metal detecting and digging holes all over the battlefield, which sadly we do see occasionally. I think that's wrong. I think that shouldn't happen. But in an area where things are turned over, then I, I don't, uh, I don't uh, see an issue at all. And interesting, I got a little comment in, in my notes. I always carry some notes here and a good little comment about... It's intermingled. Everything is intermingled. So it's not just I'm finding First World War uh, relics. I'm also finding medieval relics. I'm finding Celtic relics. I'm finding lead seals from grain sacks. I'm finding whetstones for sharpening scythes. Again, clay pipes. They are the mainstay of the European fields. Shards of, of pottery. A Celtic bead. I've even found one Celtic bead. So you, you never know what you're going to find. And it is intermingled. That ploughing intermingles things as well. So there's no there's no context. So it doesn't matter if you just pick pick them up. Obviously, the same as in the UK. If you find something of real historical significance, a hoard of coins or something, then you have to report it. But in the areas where I'm looking, it's been turned over. It's been turned over, in fact, by the shelling of the Great War and then the ploughing on, on top of it. Uh, so, no, I have no qualms about uh, picking anything up in the, in, the, in the fields at all. It's a very interesting point, Pete, because I, as long as I've been visiting the battlefields, I've enjoyed 
picking up the occasional relic, especially if you if you go on a mission and 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 you know you want to find the site where there was a machine gun post or the German front line used to be in the field. And if you then go and are successful in your mission, and then while you're there, you find a couple of bullets or or a badge or something like that. Then absolutely, um, I I've always found that a really in- enjoyable aspect of, of keeping those things. But a couple of things have in- influenced me over the years, and um, I, I'm not at all worried about this idea that people say, "Oh, if everyone takes something from the battlefields, there'll be nothing left." Perhaps in a place like Gallipoli, that's important. I know that when Charles Bean went to Waterloo as a young child in the uh, in the 19th century. He was disappointed to see that there wasn't a single fragment of relic on the battlefield of Waterloo because it had been so picked clean in the previous 50 or 60 years. Uh, I'm not worried about that, particularly on the battlefields like the Somme. I'm not worried about people taking relics away or the historical importance of them. That's, As you say, that's not the case. There's no archaeological um, importance to any of these items. But a couple of things have influenced me over the years. The first one is I just um, started to have so much stuff that I was bringing home that it was getting difficult to remember Everyone, you know, one bullet starts to look like the next. And I, I felt that I wasn't doing it justice. I, I suppose I could have had a better system of labelling, but I felt I wasn't doing it justice just to bring all this stuff home and, and then within a short period of time forget exactly where I found it. Um, but the other thing is, of course, because we both work in the battlefield tourism industry, we I had a number of run-ins and difficulties with people on tours, um, which encouraged me to start saying, in, in the end, after a few um, difficult and occasionally dangerous incidents, I then just started saying to people whenever I was on the ground, the easy thing to do was just say, look, don't touch anything. If you see something, we'll get a photo of it. You can take that home. I suppose that's been the other thing that's changed as well since I've been visiting the battlefields. We all now have a phone in our pocket. So in the old days, when I first started walking the battlefields, the only record you had of anything you found was what you took with you. Um, What I've started doing these days is when I find interesting artifacts, collecting them together and taking a photo. Um, And I find that having a photo of these items is, um, to me as good a record as actually having that item itself or potentially losing it in a drawer or or something like that. And I have, I have had several instances as well on tours where people have picked up grenades and other dangerous things. We had a school group where someone took a bullet home and the authorities in Dubai were not particularly keen on that person getting on the plane since they're carrying live ammunition. In fact, they were, they were held in Dubai and they missed their flight because they had a bullet in their bag. So, yeah, that, that has influenced me as well. Um, to uh, to just sort of this sort of blanket decision not to take anything from the battlefields. But I would say to people, as long as you know what you're doing, as long as you're being safe and not picking up grenades and things that can still cause you some nasty injuries, there is nothing wrong when you walk the battlefields taking a, taking a relic or two. Bearing in mind, it is illegal. Technically, it is illegal. The French do say you're not supposed to take things from the battlefields. So, you know, a few different variables around there. But uh, I think particularly for you, Pete, living in that, gra- in that area, walking that ground, just a, a wonderful connection with the history to find those little bits and pieces. Yeah, generally speaking, I don't touch munitions uh, of any type because I don't need to. I know what they are. Uh, there's, there's no point. I'm talking even about spent cases, uh, uh, the cartridges from, from the rifles. C- completely safe, but there's, there's no need to. And uh, I do le- leave them there. It's it's really the more personal items that I feel that uh, I feel that I'm saving really. I've, I've uh, I enjoy archaeology. I, di- I did do some archaeology when I was younger, um, and I just think it's necessary to pick these things up that are going to you know they won't survive, and so I, I don't have any qualms about picking uh, picking them up at all. 
Uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, places like Gallipoli, that's not quite the same because that is a preserved battlefield. No, nobody's been ploughing there uh, since uh, the fighting took place. Uh, just uh, just animals grazing, uh, goats and, and things. So uh, that is different. And I would be, uh, I would not take anything from uh, from Gallipoli. And again, it's illegal. You're not allowed to anyway. But I, I wouldn't want to because that is a preserved landscape. This is not a preserved landscape. This is a farming landscape. Uh, it always makes me smile. The farmers will come across and tell you where the best place is to go looking, uh, because they think we're all idiots, you know, and and we're taking lumps of of, of metal and things out of their fields that they're quite happy to, to be removed, uh, because there's an awful lot in the field. So uh, yeah, so it's um, yeah, it's 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 not a problem here at all. Um, it is. Uh, yes, you do ha- you do have to be careful with with munitions, and certainly when I take my clients from the battlefield. I normally say don't touch anything if they want to. Occasionally, I'm on a private tour and we're in a field where a relative has been lost. They want to find something to take back from that uh, that field. Sadly, of course, Australians uh, can't take the soil back because uh, uh, people generally from the UK or from uh, even from America, they will have a little uh, file and uh, vial and they will put in it some soil from the battlefield. But Australians can't. So next best thing, a little lead shrapnel ball. It looks like a marble. Uh, is normally the thing that I will I will hand out to people if they want to take something back from that field, and they're very easy to to find. But occasionally you you do find a button or something that's a little bit more personal, and and I will always hand that over to to my client as well. So I think it's uh, you just have to be careful. You have to be a little bit knowledgeable about what you're looking at, and um, but other than that, it's uh, it, it's it's not dangerous, and and it's very very interesting as you'll see from the the rest of this uh, podcast. Well, Pete, I'm super excited. Let's get out there. Let's go walking. What a, what a privilege this is for our listeners to walk the battlefields with Pete Smith. I'm jealous that I'm not there with you, mate, but let's get out and, uh, and walk that field. Wish you were with us, Matt. So uh, off we'll go. Welcome to the first of our outside uh, recordings. Uh, I'm just leaving my house in the village of Flares and uh, heading down through the village uh, towards the um, famous... Well, famous to me anyway, memorial to the 41st uh, Division. It's the figure of a British Tommy uh, on top of a plinth. He's looking up the street, perhaps he's uh, waiting for the tanks to come and support him. Um, On the 15th of September, this is uh, where tanks first went into action for the first time. So we're passing him, giving him a nod as we uh, as we walk past. And then we're going to head east, uh, turning right. This road I've always known as Bulls Road, but in doing the research for this uh, this podcast, I've realised uh, that it's not called Bulls Road. The uh, proper uh, name for it is uh, Rue de Gerdecourt, uh, so Gerdecourt Road, and that's where this road leads to now. Uh, at the time of the First World War, this road was actually uh, going to uh, a place called Le Bouffe, uh, the Beef, so hence the name uh, Bulls Road. So we're just leaving the... Uh, starting to leave the last of the houses uh, behind us. Um, and we're now entering a sunken road. So we have banks on both sides, one of the famous sunken roads of the Somme uh, battlefield. For this region, very, very common. But of course, used throughout the whole of the war as a place of, of shelter for both sides. Also a place of danger, because uh, on the trench maps they were marked. So always uh, places that had a, a double edge to them. Uh, safety, but but danger from uh, shelling the enemy, shelling them. Um, we're going down a gentle slope and into a valley. Um, only a gentle valley. Walking up the other side. And as we start to climb the other side... 
where we can see a cross of sacrifice. The cross of sacrifice, one of those features of all of the Commonwealth Wargrave cemeteries. Um, quite a, a substantial cross with a, a sword uh, emblazoned on, on one side of it. Uh, and that sword uh, represents a crusader sword. So what we're going to do is we're going to just walk in through the entrance and find a place to uh, sit down and uh, just on the steps I think and then we'll have a chat about uh, about what, where we're going next I'm just walking across to the to the steps okay so in a minute we're going to head uh, further along Bulls Road heading uh, further out of the village uh, into the open fields and in fact Bulls Road marks the uh, the extent of the success on the 15th of September 1916. This is where the attacking troops in this area got to. They got to the uh, the edge, edge of the road here and dug in here. But that's not going to be the end of the battle. The battle uh, intends to get all the way to Gerdekor, which is a, a village on our left-hand side, just out of, uh, out of sight. Um, if we look directly in front of us from the front of the cemetery where we're sitting, then we can see that uh, Bulls Road continues to climb. Well, on top of that... Uh, the highest points, which we're going to go past in a second. That's where there was an artillery, a German artillery position. This was taken out by tanks on the 15th of September. Um, and, uh, and was a German strong point. So we're going to walk past that and we're going to walk down the other side and to where Bulls Road takes an extreme sharp 90 degrees left hand turn. But in fact, it didn't. Uh, in 1914 uh, 18, so during the war and presumably after the war at some stage, it went straight on and it went straight to Le Bouffe. Um, it doesn't any longer. It's now a ploughed field, but you can still clearly see the, the, the roots of the road. It's uh, left an imprint in, in the landscape. And that's the field that we're going to walk in. So what we'll do now is we'll, uh, we'll stand up and we'll uh, head on walking uh, up the road again. So off we go. So up the hill, past uh, this uh, position that uh, had an artillery piece, or several, it was a battery, several uh, batteries, several guns here. In fact, there's an interesting little story here. The tanks overran this position, but tanks are not good. You can't get out of a tank and, and capture the Germans, uh, uh, making sure that the Germans are either dead or have surrendered. And the tanks drove over here, the guns went underground, and they actually came out again. And as the tanks came back, as they developed problems, remembering this is the first day of the use of tanks, these guns actually were manned again and waited for the tanks to come back past them and actually successfully knocked out uh, one of the tanks as it uh, headed back to its start point. Uh, and they had to wait for the infantry before this position was completely cleared. Another little by the by, one of my friends has uh, one of the dial sights uh, from one of these guns. Uh, it was souvenired by an officer and he was lucky enough to actually to pick it up in an auction. So very jealous, I quite like that. So we're now heading down to that 90 degree turn on the road and we're going to stop here again. We can't walk into the field. Um, this is May. Uh, we're recording this in the May. Um, the field is now uh, ploughed and seeded. And in fact, in this case, it's not seeded. It's got potatoes in. So we can't walk in between the, the ridges of the potatoes. But when I walked here, and this is what we're going to be talking about, when I walked here in March, a few months previously, then very different. We could walk into the field. It was rough ploughed. It had had two or three months of rain and frost and weather on, on it, and uh, which meant it was uh, ideal for uh, having a, a look and getting the feel of what went on in, uh, in this area. Um, 
So I'm just going again. We're going to find somewhere. We're going to sit on the bank here, and uh, and we'll tell you exactly uh, what went on and what I discovered here uh, two months ago. I'll just plop myself down again. So, um. So how do I walk a field? Well, to start off with, you don't go galloping about quickly. You walk into the field, and I put my head down straight away, and I just look at the ground very carefully, looking at the ground, because you're looking for very small things, really. These are, are not big things. I'm ignoring the, the shells, which you do come across, and you definitely ignore those, and other munitions. I'm, I'm looking for the just the small things. But what you have to do is every now and then you lift your head up to look exactly where you are to see what's around you. So... I walked up the, the road, which is directly in front of us. It's no longer a road, the old Bulls Road. There's a bank on the left-hand side. And I decided just to scramble up this bank. It's not a steep bank, so scrambling's not a very good word. It gives the wrong impression. I walked up this uh, this bank slowly. Um, and I stopped at the top because I started seeing a lot of fired British cartridges. Now, that's unusual. So why is it unusual? Well, you have to think about the mentality of an infantryman when he's attacking. He leaves the safety of his trench... He's got to cross no man's land, and he wants to get across no man's land as quick as he can. He's going to perhaps have one round, well certainly have one round in the breach, so the weapon is cocked and ready to just uh, squeeze the trigger and off it goes. But he doesn't want to fire it unless he can see somebody to fire at, and in most cases you have to say as they cross no man's land they see very little. And so he would have crossed no man's land Possibly a Mills bomb in one hand, and as he got to the German trenches, threw your, threw your Mills bomb, the Mills bomb uh, explodes. You go to the lip of the trench, look down, fire your rifle at the nearest uh, German, jump into the trench, and then it's bayonet work. That, that nasty part of the fighting of the First World War. And so it's very unusual to actually find the rounds uh, in the uh, in the field. So here we are on this this lip of the the highest point almost of uh, of this this sunken road. Uh, the bank on the left hand side. I know the German front line is about three hundred meters beyond this lip, uh, and where the soldiers had come from is about a hundred meters to our right, the other side. So I'm very firmly in no man's land, in the centre of no man's land. So I bend down and I have a look at the cartridges. I pick one up just to... Uh, uh, I don't normally take cartridges uh, uh, home. Uh, you can have too much of a good thing. There's very little point in taking fired cartridges home. Um, and it puzzles me because there are so many of these cartridges uh, lying around. So I then uh, move a little bit further. And it, if again, more cartridges and some little pieces of metal that I know from experience what they're coming from. They're coming from a, a magazine from a Lewis gun uh, that's been left in the fields here. And that gives me a clue that this is where a Lewis gun was in action. It explains why there were so many uh, rounds fired here. A little further, looking down. And now I'm looking very uh, closely at this uh, little patch of land because when you know that a soldier's been fighting here, then this is where you're liable to, to perhaps find something else. And the first thing that I find here... Uh, which is uh, fairly unusual. I've only found three or four in all of the, the 20 years that I've been here. And that's part of uh, a belt from what's called the 1914 leather equipment. Now, the 1914 leather equipment was emergency issue of uh, infantryman's... Uh, it's the belt that he carries his ammunition in for his uh, for his rifle. Uh, and this is the, the clasp. It's, the, it's called an S-clasp, a snake clasp. And this is the clasp. And it's got quite a bit of leather still uh, attached to it. So... An unusual find, and, and one that that uh, certainly I will uh, I will keep. And so I pop that into a little bag, and I normally carry a little bag with me. 
I'm actually walking up and down the road as I'm talking. I find it easier uh, to do that. So if you're wondering what the noise is, me walking. Um, and again, looking very careful to see uh, what else uh, I can uh, I can spot. And I find something that I that really I find extraordinary. And it's the it's the personal belongings of the men that fought here. And this is a little tiny bit of uh, of silvery looking material. It's actually aluminium. It's a little small aluminium uh, tin that's been crushed flat. And I can hold it in the palm of my hand. And when I look carefully, I can actually even even a hundred years later, I can I can read a little a little bit of lettering on it, and it says shaving S. Now, the S would have stood for uh, stick, so it's shaving stick. So what is that? Well, in the days when cutthroat razors were being used, it's um, it's where the soap, the soap was inside the shaving stick. It was protected with this little aluminium uh, tube. You pushed it out, you rubbed your shaving brush on there with your badger, um, I think in those days they had uh, badger fur bristles, um, and uh, you got up a, a lather and onto your face and then, then with your, your cutthroat razor. So it's a very personal piece of kit that would have come out of a soldier's small pack uh, on his back. Uh, unusual actually, because very often if they were just in an attack and going into action for a, for a couple of days then they weren't really expected to shave but here it is in, in the field so this man had obviously carried it and that makes you start thinking would you leave this in the fields would you just throw it away well no you wouldn't that means that somebody's small pack has been has, has been here uh, in the fields um, I found cutthroat razors in the past because they have bone handles and quite often they're a nice thing to find because the soldiers actually burnt their initials and numbers uh, onto the the handles so uh, that's uh, that's always a, a very rewarding when you can actually tie something to an individual now I've only ever done that a couple of times in the 20 years so, so it's very unlikely that we'll find anything uh, here or that I would find anything here uh, two months ago so on again, uh, a little bit further, and we, we find the things that you normally expect to find. More buckles from soldiers' equipment, a button. Now, I always find the buttons very emotive, really. This is a, a general service button. We've been on the tunic of a soldier who fought here. And um, I, I like it in the sense because you know that the last time... Uh, he touched that button. Would have, that would have been the last person that touched it before I picked it up out of the fields, and it gives you a I don't know a little thrill really to know that to know that uh, hopefully he lived, but uh, and he's just lost the button. Um, but the last time he touched that button, the last person to touch that button before you picked it up was the soldier himself. So uh, I quite like that connection, and this is one of the reasons why I do what I, what I do. Really, it gives you more of a connection. Now, what is becoming obvious to me as I'm walking down this, this, following this, this top of this, um, this bank, I look up and I look to the right, and I can see from where I am that there's a position that I know quite well. It's on the road, and that's where the German trench ran. Here, we're lucky; the German tr- trench runs right along the new road to Gerdekar, so we can uh, we know exactly where it was. It was called the Gerd Trench, G I R D. If anybody wants to look on the uh, the trench maps, and it's it's the trench that's just in front of a place called Gerdekar, and. No doubt I'm saying that wrong, as you know, for those that have listened to these podcasts before, my my uh, pronunciation of French village is not brilliant. Let's uh, stick together, Carl. Um, and there's a point on this road uh, called Point 91, and it's where there was a, a Maxim gun position there. Now, once I get the, 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 the feel of the landscape, and that's why you need to look up and look round, you realise that where all this all this debris, all of these bits and pieces from the soldiers' equipment and, and from their lives uh, on the Western Front, 
why is it here? Well, it's here because this is where you could be seen by the German machine gunner. So as they crested this little this little bank, then they become very visible to the German machine gunner there away on our right-hand side, about three, 400 metres away. 300 metres. Uh, and... Um, it becomes obvious that what's going on here, well, not obvious, you have to think about it a bit. What's going on here is these, this is men going to ground because they're taking very heavy fire. So in other words, uh, some of them will be hit, some of them are falling down, and some of them are actually diving to the ground. And I suspect this is where we found all the uh, Lewis gun rounds, this light machine gun, the Lewis gun, when it opens fire from that position to try and counter the machine gun fire coming from the, the, the right flank. So... Again, carry on walk, walking this line, knowing now a little bit more about why this line is here. Because this is me, this is exploring. I've never walked this field before, so this is all new. Of course, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take back all the information that I gleaned from literally walking the fields and look at the trench maps and get the diaries out and, and try and figure out what went on here. One of the things I do know is that this is the 14th Division that is fighting here. It was known as uh, the Light Division. So one of the uh, divisions of the of the British Army here, 14th Division, this is where they're fighting on the 15th and 16th of September in 1916. And then I find something that's really going to be the clue. And what it is, it's the, the remnants of a, uh, a shoulder title. So what's a shoulder title? Well, it's in brass. It's on the shoulder of every single British soldier. Uh, and it tells you what regiment they are. Um, and in this case, I have no idea because it's crushed and, I can, and it's broken. It's only a fragment of one. And what I can see are the letters M-E-R. And M-E-R is very difficult to work out what that could possibly be, especially since I, I can tell it's in the, from the middle. And so I, I put that in my bag, and I, uh, and I will look at that when I get home. But that is going to be the clue that will tell me which battalion, which regiment it is that's fighting uh, at this location. And then a few more buckles, a few more bits and pieces. About two hours this was, so it makes it uh, sound in the 10, 15, 20 minutes that I'm describing it. It makes it sound as if uh, I hadn't been here very long, but uh, I had. I'd been here for about uh, about two hours. And I head back. What I'd done, which is odd for me, I suppose, really, is... Inadvertently, without thinking, I had picked up one of the fired cartridges. Completely safe, it's just an empty cartridge. And I just popped it in with the rest of the bits and pieces that I picked up. One of the first things I do when I, I get home is I wash and clean and dry. And if it's bits of leather, I try and put some uh, some leather soap or something in to stop them from going hard and, and, fa and falling to pieces. And I also make sure that I keep things together so I know what day and where I was. Because uh, that's the whole point of these things. They, they have to have a context. If you don't have a context, there's very little point in, in collecting them. And this cartridge case that I'd picked up, and who knows why I'd picked this one up, it had something inside it. It started, I could hear it rattling. And so I carefully washed it and I, I gave it a, a shake. And out popped, uh, and I just found this absolutely extraordinary, out popped a pencil. So this cartridge case had not been used, or it had been used, obviously, to hold a, a bullet at one stage. It had been fired, a soldier had picked it up, he had a stub, 
of a, of a pencil. And this is an indelible pencil, and that's what most soldiers wrote with. In other words, it's, it's not quite... Um, in fact, I have no idea what an indelible pencil actually is, that what causes it. But effectively, it, it makes the, your pencil so it doesn't, uh, you can't rub it out. It's like ink. Um, and uh, indelible pencils are... As, you, as those have listened to podcasts, podcasts before will realise that I collect memorabilia of the Great War uh, and my favourite collecting theme are postcards and photographs. And very often they are written on the back in this indelible blue. It's always blue, blue uh, pencil. So to find this inside a bullet, and you know exactly what's happened, it's become a stub, so it's not it's hard to hold. So what the soldier has done is pushed it into a, a bullet to give him just that extra extra few weeks of, uh, of writing. And to me, to find something so personal, now I look at it and I can see that he sharpened it with a penknife, not a, not obviously a, a modern uh, a pencil sharpener. So that that's his strokes, his cuts in the wood of a man that that sharpened this before he went uh, into action, action, and then had it with him in his equipment. It may be from the same man that had the shaving uh, brush. I don't know. We never will know. But to find something so personal, I suppose to me. That is why I do this. That's why I walk the fields because you you learn and you you feel a a great connection to the men uh, who who fought here. So what are we going to do now? Well, I'm going to go and I'm going to head back towards the cemetery because I'm going to sit down uh, again. And so we're walking back up the hill away from the field uh, where I found these uh, these interesting uh, artifacts. And of course, what I did uh, next, I. I uh, got my books out. I looked up uh, M-E-R. What does M-E-R stand for? Well, it's the middle of the word Somerset. So what do I know? Well, immediately I know this is the Somerset Light Infantry. So th- th- where I'm I'm walking is where one battalion of the Somerset Light Infantry fought. Now, I'm lucky. I've got a nice, uh, a nice substantial library. And I've got the history of the Somerset Light Infantry uh, in the First World War. So all I do is I open up uh, that date. Lots of battalions, but there'll only be one battalion that fought there, and it was the 6th Battalion. So the 6th Battalion uh, fought here. They fought here on the 16th. Uh, of September in 1916. So I'm just going to plonk myself down. Now you're going to hear some rustling now because I'm going to get uh, my notes out for this because I need to, uh, I need to look at those. <sighs> right. So. Here we go. So this is the story uh, taken from uh, a combination of their war diary and various other books of what happened to them on that day, on the uh, the 16th of se- September. But we're going to start a little earlier than that. So we're going to start on the 14th of September. And this is where they'd been resting. They'd been resting at a place called Selencore, which is near Amiens, behind the lines. And they then got word that they were needed at the front again, and they headed towards the front. On the 15th of September, they were issued their bombs and flares and small arms ammunition, and they would have dropped off their large packs, fastened on their small packs, that's uh, for fighting order, for going uh, into action. And they're going to uh, occupy the trenches uh, close to uh, where I uh, find the artifacts. But before there, there's a route that they have to come in through, Benefer Woods, Delville Woods, uh, through the switch line that had been captured on the 16th, so the day before. So you can imagine they're crossing a place which would not be pleasant. There would still be a lot of bodies lying about. Uh, it wouldn't have been cleared properly. In fact, one of their jobs as they cross this landscape would be to make sure that there were no Germans uh, still uh, loitering uh, anywhere. 
and they're going to move into a series of captured trenches known as Double uh, A and Double B. These are not exciting names. I have to say, for trench names, <laughs> I feel like making something up and calling them something else, but uh, in all of the uh, the diaries, they're marked as Double A and Double uh, B. On the 16th of September, they move into the front line, and they're not happy. The, the weather's not particularly brilliant, uh, and no rations have arrived, so they've not been fed. So they're expected to use their iron rations, their emergency rations, whichever every soldier uh, carries with them. The big problem is a lack of water, so not a lot of, of water. At 4.30, uh, their Lieutenant Colonel, who's called uh, Lieutenant Ritchie, Lieutenant Colonel Ritchie, should I say, um, he's ordered uh, to attack at 9.25. So this is 4.30, they're in the front line, it's still dark. 9.25, it will just be coming, uh, well, it'll be in daylight for uh, about an hour and a half, two hours. So it's going to be a daylight uh, attack. Now, that is not long enough for them to know anything. They've not been here before. They know nothing about what's in front of them. They've not had a chance to reconnoitre the ground. And so it's uh, already, you can see, lack of food, not being fed, long marching, no time to have a look at what's in front, expected to go uh, straight into action. So uh, I'm going to just explain where the different companies are. B Company was on the right, C Company in the middle, and A Company on the left. Now, that is from the direction of if we were in the sunken road, where we've just been, uh, imagine that we walked where I walked uh, two months ago, then that's behind us. So they're going to be crossing over the sunken road as they uh, attack. Um, so at six o'clock, the artillery opens fire, and it's described as desultory and too scanty. Um, and it slackens and then stops uh, just after nine o'clock, remembering that they're going to be attacking at uh, 9.25. Now, I may not have said that already, but they're going to be attacking at 9.25. So at 9.25, there's no artillery support. Uh, there's been very little. There's no creeping barrage. There's nothing to aid them in their attack, which there should have been, um, because by now we are using the creeping barrage, but no barrage to protect them as they advance. And... Oddly, they have a little, another odd thing. Their trench doesn't line up exactly with the German trench they're going to attack. And so as they climb out of their trench, they have to do a half right incline. Um, so it's, it's called a right incline. In other words, they turn half right. Um, and that means that the, obviously direction is a bit of a problem. If you're doing, if you're doing that and you don't know quite where you're going and then you have to do a half right turn before you head off uh, to advance, then already we're losing cohesion. Men are not staying directly in, in, in the lines. They're going to go over in two waves from each each company, uh, and almost immediately they start to, uh, taking fire. But the heavy fire is going to arrive, as we suspected from, from the walk that I did, as they drop down into this little sunken road, or what's left of it, the old Bulls Road, as they climb up the bank on the other side, and they get spotted by the German machine gunners uh, at uh, point 91. And uh, it's called enfilade fire. It's coming in from their flank, and it's going to do terrible damage to the attacking companies, who some of them go to ground there, again, as we suspected, an open fire. Others continue on, heading towards the Gerd line, and that's their objective. Now, there's another complication. There is a trench that's in between this position on this little ridge and the Gerd trench that they didn't know about, and they think that that trench is the Gerd uh, line, and so they attack that, there are Germans in it, not many, and they, they successfully kill or capture quite a few. And so they think they've done their business. Very heavy casualties already, but they think they've done their business. It's not until that, that evening, to around about six o'clock, 
that they realise that they're not in the right place. Um, and when Lieutenant Colonel Ritchie, the commanding officer, realises he knows that that's not good enough, they will have to try and take the Gerd line, and so they advent- try to advance towards the Gerd line, and again, just appalling uh, casualties. So the Brigadier General, the br- Brigadier of this brigade, he sends a message urging both battalions to hold where they are. And the 6th uh, uh, Somersets, uh, they uh, are ready have taken 350 casualties. I'm going to do the complete casualty figures when we get to the end. But 350 casualties, 350 men from an attacking force is an enormous uh, number of uh, of men. The King's Own Yorkshire Light Infantry, also the 6th Battalion, comes up to support them. and They're in close support and they are also taking very heavy casualties. And it very quickly becomes obvious that they're not going to be able to move uh, uh, to move further uh, further forwards. And the following day, on the 17th of September at 5.30, having spent the night there just trying to hold on to where they are, they are withdrawn uh, from the line, uh, along with the King's Own Yorkshire Light Infantry. They then uh, walk back across the old battlefield of the day before until they get to a location called Pommier's Redoubt. Now, Pommier's Redoubt is a very famous location. It's almost worth a, worth, uh, worth a podcast in, in its own right. But they get to Pommier's uh, redoubt, uh, well behind the firing line now, had been a German strong point, um, where they have the roll call, where they call the roll. And uh, it's just a- a- appalling. Of the officers that attacked, there were 17 officers in the attack that took place. All of them are casualties. So there are, there are, are no officers that have come back at all from the uh, the action. Three of them were killed, 12 were wounded, and two are missing. Of the other ranks, um, everybody else, the non-officers, uh, 387 have become casualties, of which 41 uh, were killed, uh, 203 were wounded, and 143 are missing. So that means the battalion is ineffective. The battalion will have to be taken out of the line and, and rebuilt. There's not enough men there to uh, to uh, make them a practical uh, in any in any form on on the battlefield until they've been uh, uh, had men uh, replacing those those casualties. The sad aspect, and it is sad, I think, is that most of those that died that day have no known grave. Uh, so they're on the Teepval to the uh, the missing of the Battle of the Somme. We can the, the Teepval Memorial carries uh, carries all of their names. Um, there's a cemetery that we can see from this position, from if we went back onto their battlefield, we can actually see a cemetery. It's called the Guard Cemetery uh, Le Bouffe. And ten of the men uh, of the uh, of the Sixth Somerset Light Infantry, then they are actually uh, buried in the Guard Cemetery at Le Bouffe. And I think that's quite fitting, as if we want to, uh, and I have done, we can we can go and, and visit uh, uh, their uh, their graves. So that's it. Just a, a little story about walking the battlefield and, and what you gain from walking the battlefield. Um, I hope you've enjoyed it. I'm, uh, we intend to uh, to record a few more of these of uh, of actually out on the ground uh, for you. And um, so uh, uh, I hope you've enjoyed it, and uh, um, I'll, uh, I'll I'll talk to you again soon. Mom 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you would like to support the show, there's a couple of ways you can do it. Firstly, you can become a member. For a small monthly fee, you can subscribe to the show and listen to every episode ad-free and also receive exclusive episodes directly from Pete and I. So see the link in the show notes to sign up at ACAST Plus and become a member of the show. Also, if you want to make a one-off contribution, you can now buy us a coffee. Visit buymeacoffee.com forward slash battlewalks and you can make a small contribution there. See you next week.